A warning for listeners, this episode contains brief descriptions of animal abuse. Please take care when listening. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a podcast that focuses on current news in the Texas veterinary profession. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Today, I speak with Dr. Melinda Merck about the signs of animal cruelty. Dr. Merck provides expert consultations and casework on a variety of animal-related cases, including criminal and civil cases. She has training and experience in a wide range of crime scene and forensic science topics. She provides expert case review, including veterinary reports, investigation findings, and crime scene analyses. Dr. Merck also offers training and workshops for investigators, attorneys, and veterinarians on veterinary forensics and animal crime scene investigation. So let's get into it. Dr. Merck, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a forensic veterinarian, um, which is really consulting and speaking. Um, I do a lot of speaking and uh, working on cases. But that's really more of a part-time thing. Um, I used to have a practice in Atlanta uh, for about 17 years and then started doing a lot of work with shelters. And that's how I got into uh, more of the cruelty work and then started to develop the field of veterinary forensics. Um, So that's a short synopsis. (laughs) I graduated from Michigan State um, in 1988. And then uh, started doing, uh, worked in a small animal practice for a year and then a feline practice. And then I opened up a feline practice about a year later. Uh, But I always worked with shelters, with dogs and other species that might cross my path. Um, So it's been a very um, interesting career. And then when the pandemic hit, I knew all the courts and flights and speaking engagements were going to go away for a while. And um, so that's when I think I mentioned before that I uh, went to our local Randalls and applied there and started working at the grocery store. Well, that must have been quite the change from working in a practice. When I first applied, um, you know, I, I, I love our little grocery store, um, so I always like bagging groceries, whatever, and I have a family members that go back three generations that worked in grocery stores. So I first uh, was supposed to be a cashier. Within five days, I was an assistant front-end manager for the cashiers and did that for, geez, about a little less than a year and then um, realized I really didn't. I really don't like managing a a lot of people. Um, That was one of the things I didn't like in private practice. Um, So I uh, became the assistant grocery manager. So I do like organizing. So putting out stock and uh, being physical. Um, So I was assistant grocery manager. And during that time, the COVID vaccines came out. So the pharmacy team solicited me to help with that. So I could draw up. They were amazed I could draw vaccines without any bubbles. Um, 
So I assisted with uh, doing that. And then uh, come summer, they were losing a lot of their pharmacy tech. So they recruited me to apply to be a pharmacy tech. So I started that last fall and just passed my pharmacy tech exam. So now I'm a licensed pharmacy technician working. That's so funny. I've never heard of someone moving from grocery to pharmacy so easily. Yeah. But I'm I'm sure your experience really helped you with that. It does. We have a drive-through window, get to see all the dogs that come through. Uh, they only had milk bones. So I went and bought small soft treats for the little dogs and um, the older dogs. So that, and we, you know, we do some animal uh, prescriptions. And um, so it's been, one of the things I missed when I left private practice was the interactions with people, the interesting people. Um, so I, that has been enriching um, getting to know the customers and um you know, for the most part, it is, um, it is good. Um, my aunt and uncle were pharmacists and uh, my mom was a nurse. So there's more background in that medical thing. But what I did not realize, I was worried I would get bored and it is, it is nowhere near anything boring in pharmacy. It is absolutely crazy. And all this has kept me on the front lines of what's going on during this pandemic especially in pharmacy, uh, with the vaccines, with the changes, um, you know, but the other stressors it's paralleling the veterinarians is the pharmacists are, are quitting and the techs, it's been very hard on them to be asked to, in addition to doing pharmacy, normal pharmacy vaccinations. Um, and there's just no time. I watched for four hours, a pharmacist do nothing but vaccines and couldn't even work on prescriptions. So um, that, and now we're being asked some with the uh, COVID tests that's being covered under insurance. So that's all coming through pharmacy. There's going to be masks. Yeah, it's, it's just seems to be piling on. So they're really suffering um, mentally, you know, about how pharmacy is changing what's being asked of them. Yeah. So, but it is, it is um, very fast paced. Yeah, just like it reminds me of veterinary medicine <laughs> that you don't have time to eat. It's it's just like constant phones and something to do. And um, yeah, I, I but I like it. I really, really like it. And they've all, the, the other agreement I had to do this is that because of, you know, as things started to reopen, they would accommodate if I needed to do anything on the forensic side. So they adjust the schedules so I can do webinars or um, I had to travel for just one time uh, for a trial. Um, so they, they allot for that. Um, so that, that makes it, it, it makes it good. I am their go-to person for handling, re- resolving um, conflict. They're like, how do you know how to do that? I'm like, are you kidding? We had a we had clients every 15 to 30 minutes and it was always emotional, you know, it tends to be emotional. Um, so you learn to read people and, and how to, to get it distilled down to where you can uh, work with the, the client. Um, so yeah, that's been, um, <laughs> I've been able to use that skill set. Great. How that transfers, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you mentioned working on some cases for trial. What were those like? Yeah, this was a case in in Colorado, and it was um, a lot of these predated 
pandemic. Um, but this one, um, the neighbor caught on video abuse to a puppy uh, in their neighbor's backyard. And uh, though there was, so it was kind of an interesting case because there wasn't, they weren't able to document eventually physical injury, but we were able to, you know, definitely show the distress, the abusive behavior um, of the owner and neglect. Um, so um, yeah, that was, it was interesting. So what I did was review all the videos, uh, draft a report and, um, and then eventually flew out to Colorado to go to go to trial. And um, it was interesting, <laughs> you know, mask wearing, not mask wearing. Um, it was a rural area, um, but we we ended up getting a guilty and um, in, in placement for the dog. That was the big thing was that they would release the dog. And actually, the lead investigator took her home. Um, so she's doing extraordinarily well. So that was, it was just based on emotional suffering, really. You know, we could say when he struck her or whatever, tried, you know, dangling her by her throat, um, that she would have been in fear for her life. You know, it was, it was a really good case where the veterinarian plays a role in articulating the animal's experience of pain and suffering, not just physical, but mental and emotional as well. That's great. I'm so glad there are forensic veterinarians that can step in and speak for the animals in that circumstance. That's amazing. Yeah. And there's more going on. I mean, I know, um, you know, sometimes I do consulting for defense, um, which is really interesting that most of the time that is just really explaining to the defense attorney what you've got and what you're up against and what, what this actually means. This is what a necropsy report is telling you. Um, in 99.99999%, they end up taking a plea. Um, so that's, that's really, really been uh, rewarding because I think it's important that both parties understand the evidence and they're really lost, uh, especially public defenders. When they get an animal case, they don't understand it. Uh, so that's, I've done some of those, and um, but the nice thing is that there has been, my goal when I first started teaching that was to put myself out of a job, uh, that I would teach more veterinarians to step up and do this. You don't have to do it all the time when you get a case in your practice. Um, so that has, um, that's helped is that especially there can't just be one or two or three people in the United States that do it. We need someone in every city in every county, in every state that can handle, that will work on cases. And um, so um, I, that's what I was able to, you know, I punt cases a lot uh, because there's more and more veterinarians that are willing to do the work and they should be looking at their home area to do it. Now, for veterinarians that have never done this before, how could they start doing veterinary forensics? Well, there's more, there's, well, there's textbooks out, uh, there's online courses. Uh, we're certainly going, I'm going to be speaking at the uh, TVMA's conference in um, March, but there's, there's a lot of resources and they're designed to be, accommodate the veterinarian schedule, right? So uh, Vetfolio has uh, certificate courses with one and two hour, you know, short uh topic trainings uh, on all different species, uh, everything from necropsies to um, wildlife to 
um, you know, rabbits to ducks and horses, as well as crime scene investigation. So I, they were designed to do that. Um, and then, so they can, if they get a sexual abuse case, they, you know, what do I do? There's a one hour lecture on that. Um, so that's a great, I think, uh, just in time training that people can look at. And it's very thorough. Uh, the AHA uh, also developed um, a course um, that's very interactive and detailed about documentation and uh, different types of forensics. So I think that one is a really good resource. So there's there's more and more out there. We finally have, uh, they're small, but a couple of textbooks on forensic pathology uh, that came out three or four years ago. And there's, if they're interested in joining the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association, they are publishing, I think it's every quarter, um, they have an online journal uh, where people around the world are submitting papers. So that seems to be the best place for some more current research. It runs the gamut from small animal to wildlife. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, veterinarians are natural investigators. It's just them getting the confidence because it's important to know what it's not. It's not what the client is saying. It doesn't fit with how the uh, the animal is being housed, uh, such as indoor only or leash walks or whatever. It, they, when they're, they really need to pay attention to that radar, right? Uh, the fracture pattern doesn't fit. Um, so I, those are all, all really, um, the veterinarians are really already ready to do it. They just got to have the confidence to know that. There's some more recent things that have come out like patterns of injury. Um, rib fractures are very uncommon in motor vehicle accidents and dogs and cats, extremely uncommon. Um, so they need to have their radar up, especially when certain ribs on uh, are fractured. Um, the more flexible ribs are certainly not um, easy to fracture in the rib cage. And then um, if they're bilateral, that's not definitely not a motor vehicle accident. Um, so the, it's the, there's some um, publications that have been out um, through JAVMA on dogfighting injuries. Uh, but the unfortunately, the motor vehicle accident paper was in the journal Forensic Sciences, so it didn't hit the uh, veterinary journals. Um, but that's there, there. So there's some things out there. That's why I try to bring it in through the lectures. I'll certainly be talking about that um, in March. But there's a lot of research, you know, just depends on how someone wants to learn. Yeah, that's great. So what exactly do you love about veterinary forensics? Oh, what I love? Um, I love figuring out the, the mystery. I, you know, I love solving the mystery or at least, you know, narrowing it down. Um, so I like, I like figuring out what it's not. That it really is a key thing um, that it's not consistent with, you know, falling down the stairs or um, in utilizing that common sense. I love working with the investigator and the prosecutor. You form really good relationships there. Um, and I, I really love being the voice of the animal. Um, you know, I don't like writing the reports. I don't like testifying, but it's that it's also the opportunity to tell the story. 
most of these cases never, ever go to court when you write a really good report. Um, so um, that's that's a trick that, you know, I do do lectures on that about um, in trainings. I'm doing a workshop for in the state of Washington on that. If you write a good report, you don't you a lot of times they're just going to plea it out. Right. So I love that um, articulation of on behalf of the animal. Yeah. Have you had any cases that really surprised you, like that ended up being totally different from your first impression? Yeah, there was, um, there was, in fact, we, I, I called a, a, and some, uh, brought in a team of different veterinarians to take a look. Uh, it was sent all these photos of this cat, this kitten, um, People brought it into the emergency room. They seemed to be altered. They were acting suspicious. All three of them had different stories. You know, it was all the red flags, right? And this kitten had these just strange injuries, uh, combinations of abrasions and lacerations, which are from blunt force trauma, um, uh, missing hair, some burns. It was just bizarre. And um, sometimes when those heal up, you can see the pattern a little bit better. But the the investigator, I mean, we're looking at it. And we're like, what in the world, right? What what happened to this kitten? And, and no skull fractures, but it was all these injuries on the head primarily. And um, they ended up the one of their the stories was something about the kitten getting into the ductwork. And we're like, what that what? So the investigator goes out and actually they show her around and. She takes pictures. The kitten had got in through a vent into the ductwork all the way to the heating and air unit, uh, furnace, whatever. And there was blood all inside there, the coils next to the coils. So whenever it turned on, probably got sucked up against it. Um, uh, so the kitten lived, right? So the kitten lived, but it, it there was... It was, took a combination of the crime scene investigation, a good investigator, but it was truly just accidental, right? Where all bets were, they, they, these altered young individuals did something. They're not telling a straight story, right? But it turned out it was completely just accidental. Yeah. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, recently, a law passed in Texas regarding the outdoor tethering of dogs. Uh, have you heard about that? And do you have any thoughts about it? Tethering <laughs> for extended periods of time is horrible for the animal. It's dangerous um, in in so many ways where the animal can't escape um, if they're being attacked. Um, they're locked in if someone's going to be abusive, um, but they're separated from the humans. Right. So if they're going to do that because they don't have a fence yard or whatever they need, that is, I, I believe that there should be restrictions on, on tethering of dogs. I think that's absolutely what should be done. Um, you know, there's all sorts of resources that, um, that people will help build fences or, you know, pens or something to do for them. But yeah, um, it is, it's sad to see them alienated from the humans that are they're supposed to be part of that group right so yeah on so many levels yeah we need we need that law yes and i i didn't know that that was coming through the pipeline but when i heard about it i was just thrilled because i see a lot of tethered dogs near my neighborhood and it's just so sad 
Yeah. Yeah. It is a form of cruelty. Well, Dr. Merck, is there anything else you would like people to know? You know, I, I'm also on the, the animal welfare committee, right? And so we do a lot of work and I encourage people to um, become active, you know, sign up for uh, volunteering to assist with those committees. We've been able to do some great initiatives there um, in regards to animal cruelty and uh, animal welfare, as well as uh, pets of domestic violence. So I, you know, I, there's a lot more the veterinarians can do that doesn't take a lot of time, um, but still have a voice uh, for the animals and for the profession. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing with the veterinary community. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That was veterinary forensic consultant and TVMA member, Dr. Melinda Merck. This is a great reminder that we should keep our eyes and ears open for signs of animal abuse. If you suspect animal cruelty, you can call the local law enforcement in the county where the animal was seen to make a report. A quick announcement, TVMA will provide more continuing education in May. Check the continued education calendar at tvma.org to register for Dr. Caitlin DeWild's webinar, House Bill 2850, What Does It Mean for Handling Online Reviews and Comments? Dr. DeWild spoke at this year's annual conference, and it was one of the most memorable sessions for me. You will definitely want to check it out. If you have any topics you would like covered on this podcast or would like to nominate a guest, please email me at awood at tvma.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a colleague and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. A like, a share, a retweet, these are all great ways that you can support TVMA that won't cost you a dime. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Thanks for listening.